0: recruiting a speaker's chaplain, that I objected most strenuously to the fact that a shortlist had been put forward of six white, middle-class, privately educated men. And I said I wanted a more diverse shortlist, and this was greeted as something of a radical and revolutionary suggestion.
1: What's it? What it was it? What year was this?
0: This was in 2010. Wow. Wow. And I made a fuss about it. I said, this is a major post. I was accused in the course of the complaint of constant interference in the appointment process. Deborah, the clue was in the title. The title of the role was Speaker's Chaplain. So I didn't accept that I interfered. I assert that I involved myself. And the reason why I involved myself was that the chaplain was going to work very directly with me. If I hadn't put my foot down and said, No, I insist on having the person of my choice for this role, it wouldn't have happened. And that was true of a number of other appointments.
1: Welcome to this special edition of John Burko's Absolute Power. Hello, John.
0: Hi, Deborah. Good afternoon to you.
1: Good afternoon to you. Now, we're talking today because an article's come out in the Sunday Times, and the headline is, John Burko bites back as inquiry brands him a bully. And in the logline, it says, you referred to the parliamentary inquiry that you are currently being subjected to, as a kangaroo court, but in fact, you say to call it a kangaroo court is an insult to kangaroos. Uh, So firstly, could you tell us what are you being accused of?
0: Yes, thank you, Deborah. Well, I'm being accused of bullying staff up to 12 and a half years ago, a minimum of just under eight years ago now, and a maximum of 12 and a half years ago. And the House of Commons has a bullying and harassment policy quite properly, and it has an historic cases component whereby people can bring complaints for an unlimited period after the alleged conduct about which they wish to complain. That's going to change, by the way, in April 2022. From April 2022, it will be possible to bring a complaint against somebody only within 12 months of the alleged misconduct or unacceptable behaviour. But That change was made in April 2021, and it isn't retrospective. So in other words, there will be a different standard from April 2022, but complaints against me have been made by people relating to events as far back as 2009-10. I had fantastic relations with the great majority of the people with whom I worked as I sought to implement a reform agenda because I had a reform mandate and a reform mission, But there was a sprinkling of people who were very resistant to that agenda and who wanted to decree the way in which I should operate and what I should and shouldn't do. And I clashed with that small number of people.
1: How many people are accusing you, John?
0: Well, there were four, and one of them had his case investigated and rejected a little over a year ago. So there are now three. There are three people, one of whom is now a member of the House of Lords, another of whom is retired, and the third of whom still works in the House of Commons, and they are claiming that I bullied them while they worked with me. I, of course, Deborah, completely reject that. I don't accept for one moment I did anything of the sort. I had generally good relations with the vast majority of people, and I had good relations with a number of them, at least some of the time. But we now and again clashed, and there were differences of opinion, and in some cases, they said to me, oh, you can't do this, Mr. Speaker. And I would say, well, why not? And they'd say, well, it's never been done like that. This would be a major change. You can't do that. It's never been done like that. Or alternatively, you've got to do this. And I would say, well, why is that? And they would say, well, it's always been done that way. And so in a number of instances, we cross swords. And I readily acknowledge that there was dissension and disagreement and periodic dispute. But what I don't accept is that there was any misconduct. And I think there's a rather dangerous notion creeping into the workplace discourse now, that if two people disagree and there's an argument, well, necessarily it must follow that one person has maltreated another person. Well, that's not a proposition that I accept. And I think if we were to do so, it would be very, very dangerous indeed to the operation of the workplace.
1: Can I ask what the power differential was between you and and these three people who are making the
0: accusations? Very fair question. One of them was what I would call a co-equal. He was the most senior official in the service of the House. He wasn't publicly as well known as the Speaker, because the Speaker is an elected figure, but he was the accounting officer of the House. He was both the clerk and the chief executive of the House, and he was paid... A substantially higher salary than the Speaker of the House. He knew everybody that there was to know in the service of the House, and everybody who worked as an employee of the House was junior to him. So I would argue that we were effectively co-equals. He didn't report to me. He didn't actually report to any one individual at all. He worked under a royal warrant and couldn't be sacked by me. So I don't accept that there was any power differential between us. The other two served as Private secretary to me, the Speaker, so they ran the Speaker's office and were moderately senior staffers in the service of the House, but they did work to me. One of them wanted to sack a couple of my staff, and I wouldn't allow that to happen. And another, whom I inherited, Deborah, I didn't appoint, I inherited when I became Speaker took a very traditionalist view as to how not only the job of the Speaker's Secretary should be done, but how the job of the Speaker should be done. And therefore, I had to contend with the regular refrain between 2009-2010, it's always been done that way, or it's never been done like that, Mr. Speaker, or, or can I say I would strongly counsel against doing X or Y or Z. And the problem in the end was that we were incompatible. So with that individual, I parted company and he left, having been offered an alternative job in the House, but he didn't want it and he took a financial settlement and left in the summer of 2010. And now more than a decade later, he's saying that he was maltreated. And then there is another person who worked for eight months as my private secretary, who claims also to have been unfairly treated. I don't accept that. And I think there have been huge weaknesses in the process, which has been protracted, amateurish and unjust. But as things stand, the intended decision of the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards is against me, and I'm having to appeal that decision or that set of decisions.
1: When you say private secretary, for some people who aren't in that world, that might land as uh, executive assistant or something like that, but it doesn't mean that, does it?
0: No, the people operating as private secretary to me were running a whole office Mm -hmm. on my behalf. They had people reporting to them. One was a former naval submarine commander. The other was an experienced servant of the house. So the former naval submarine commander had come into the house service relatively late in life, but he'd already served for... I think four and a half years in that role as Speaker Secretary when he worked with me. The other person at the point at which she started working with me had worked for 16 years in the service of the House. They certainly weren't in any way disadvantaged or underprivileged people. All of the individuals concerned are white and they are either public school or university educated or both. All of them were in their 40s and beyond with very long experience in the workforce, and all were used to having staff working for and reporting to them. So I make that point only in the context of saying none of these people was a shrinking violet, none of them was an inexperienced person, none of them was what you might call a very recently joining junior Mm -hmm. in the service of the office or of the speaker. They worked with me and I did my best to work successfully with them and we had periods which worked relatively well and periods which worked less well. But I suppose I would like to make the point that none of them at the time made any suggestion of any kind in any way that he or she was maltreated by me. That notion was never so much as floated and I find it quite extraordinary that in two cases, more than a decade later, they should come forward and say, he maltreated me, and I'm going to complain that I have been bullied. I find that, frankly, quite peculiar. And I think it's fair to say that people are of a basic personality type. And if I was an exceptionally difficult person for whom to work, one would rather think that there would be a large turnover in my office or a regular sequence of complaints running over several years. Neither of those things is true, Deborah. I didn't have a large turnover. I had several people who worked with me throughout my tenure, from its start to its end, which was 10 years and four months. Other people who worked for me for eight years, seven years, five years. So there was very little turnover and very strong group loyalty and personal loyalty, personal loyalty of staff to me and personal loyalty of me to staff and moreover all of these complaints relate to a period between 2009 and 2014 i was then in post for a further 5 years during one of the most turbulent periods in post-war british politics namely the shenanigans appertaining to brexit and none of the complaints relates to that period my central contention is that i was a change maker i wanted to catalyze change i wanted to deliver meaningful reform. I wanted to bring about improvements in the workings of the chamber, the operation of the parliamentary estate, the forging and fostering of a relationship between the speaker and civil society, schools, universities, faith groups, voluntary organisations, and so on. And I did meet considerable resistance to the implementation of that agenda. And I think that does account for a lot of the difficulties that have arisen, together with on the part of A couple of people, at least, a feeling that they were very used to having their views and advice accepted. And the notion that it might be cavilled at, or still worse, disregarded or contradicted, was frankly anathema to them. They couldn't understand it. So,
1: were you suggesting that it had a sort of yes minister quality to it? That, you know, when I, I don't know if all of our listeners will know Yes Minister, but many will that the minister would put forward an idea and then the civil servant, Sir Humphrey, would say, ah, well, minister, this is not the way it's done. And Precisely.
0: That's exactly what happened. And I remember at one point when I was recruiting a speaker's chaplain that I objected most strenuously to the fact that a shortlist had been put forward of six white middle-class I think, if I remember rightly, privately educated men. And I said, I wanted a more diverse shortlist. And this was greeted as something of a radical and revolutionary suggestion.
1: Was it? What year was this?
0: This was in 2010. Wow! And I made a fuss about it. I said, this is a major post. It is a post which Ought to be the subject of a diverse shortlist. It's an appointment in London. London is hugely ethnically diverse, but it's also a post of national significance. And the country is very greatly more ethnically diverse in the past. And I want a more mixed shortlist. And this was eventually brought about. I had a disagreement with someone else about who should be appointed. And one of the people who worked for me said to me, well, I think you ought to see Mr. Cernso. And I said, well, no, I don't intend to do that. Well, why not? And I said, because I'm insistent on appointing Rose Hudson Wilkin, who would be a magnificent, empathetic and hugely impactful speaker's chaplain. I was accused in the course of the complaint of constant interference in the appointment process. Deborah, the clue was in the title. The title of the role was speaker's chaplain. So far from, as somebody said, accepting that I had interfered. I didn't accept that I interfered. I assert that I involved myself. And the reason why I involved myself was that the chaplain was going to work very directly with me. If I hadn't waged that battle, if I hadn't fought that fight, if I hadn't put my foot down and said, no, I insist on having the person of my choice for this role, it wouldn't have happened. And that was true of a number of other appointments. Separate from appointments, I can tell you that at one stage, I decided I would like to get a license so that the House could stage civil partnership ceremonies, because there was a member who wished to forge a civil partnership and to have a ceremony in the House of Commons, which I wanted him to be able to do. And I was warned by an official working for me that it would be problematic and could be very time consuming and might not happen. And the person concerned said to me, Mr. Speaker, just because Mr. X wants to have his civil partnership ceremony in the House, it doesn't mean you're under an obligation to deliver that opportunity for him. To which, of course, my reply was, it's not a question of an obligation. It's a question of me wanting to do the right thing. And I did do the right thing. And the license was obtained. And the ceremony did take place. And the relationship was formed. But again, If I had just taken the line of least resistance, if I just said, oh, I see you object to this, you don't think I should do this, it wouldn't have happened. So the central point I'm making is that I wanted to be a change maker. And when I stood for election, Deborah, I said, I don't want to be someone, I want to do something. I want to deliver an agenda for reform, for renewal, for revitalization, for the reassertion of the core values of this place. And that's what I sought to do. But that did mean sticking to my last, going with my instincts, proceeding with my agenda. And there were people who said, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do the other. I remember at one point when a member came to me and said that she and her husband wanted, in circumstances in which there were impromptu votes in the House, and they had no childcare available, to be able to carry their baby through the division lobby. And would I permit this? And I just needed to check that it was within my, if I may use this word again, bailiwick. Bailiwick. And I consulted a very senior official who seemed quite extraordinarily reluctant to say whether it was up to me or not. Eventually, He very reluctantly conceded that it was. In other words, it didn't require a vote of the House. But he proceeded to counsel me most strongly against the implementation of any such change, predicting that it would cause a humongous row. And proceeding to say to me, I'm bound to say, Mr. Speaker, I think a division lobby is a most unsuitable place for an infant. Members have various maladies and conditions of one sort or another, coughs and colds and so forth, I think a division lobby is a most unsuitable place for a child. And I said, well, I think that that's really for the parents to decide rather than for you or for me. And I decided to make the change and the rest is history. But anybody would have thought that I was proposing some revolutionary change that would rip asunder the constitutional fabric of the United Kingdom. Whereas, in fact, what I was proposing to do was something that would make life a little bit easier for a couple in Parliament with a little baby.
1: Mm. So given these progressive changes that you made that are on the record, There's one thing that has been said in the article that caught my eye, which was that one of the accusations is that you'd made a remark that was discriminatory in a both racial and gendered fashion. Could you please explain more about that?
0: I did no such thing. It was suggested by somebody that I'd made a remark about the appointment of... A particular black britain being an appointment made as a tick box exercise there are a number of points here first deborah i wouldn't dream of saying anything of the kind it would be wrong unacceptable and totally out of kilter With my natural instincts and disposition. Secondly, I didn't at that point know the person concerned. So it is completely incongruous to think that I would have made a remark about that individual, and in particular about that individual apparently not having the requisite skills, which is what the complainant says, given that I didn't know her. I wouldn't have made any such comment. And thirdly, Unlike the complainant, who has no discernible track record in this field remotely to compare with my own, I had at that point a track record of 14 years of commitment to gender equality, racial equality, and LGBT equality. The people in the room were two clerks, white middle-aged men, and me. No black Briton and no female Briton made that charge against me. It is a charge made by an individual, consumed by contempt and hatred for me, but it suffers from the disadvantage of being 100% wrong. Didn't do it, wouldn't have done it. It is absurd to suggest that I would, and if people are going to make decisions in these matters on the basis of the so-called civil standard of proof, the balance of probability, it would be obviously sensible to have some regard to what the track record of the accused person is. My track record was one of demonstrable support for an effectiveness in delivering greater equality. The complainant's was not.
1: So why are you saying that the man who said you said this was also the man who often resisted your efforts for progress and change in regard to
0: diversity. He tended to take the view that change would come about on an evolutionary and perhaps an incremental basis, and that of course one wanted to deliver change, but it wasn't something that could happen overnight. I think the basic difference between us was that I had a real sense of passion and urgency and wanted to broker meaningful change with dispatch. And the disputant in this case, the person who disagreed with me, did not view it in those terms. To put it very simply, I believed in having targets. I thought that we needed to be driving at clear milestones within specified periods. There was, to my horror, a discovery at one point that of the 84 senior commons service staff, none of them, none of them self-identified as black, Asian, or minority ethnic. And I remember making that point, and it was said to me, Mr. Speaker, there is one such person. And I inquired out of human interest who that was. And he said, well, for reasons of data protection, I can't disclose that. But suffice it to say that there is an individual who falls within that category, but he does not self-identify and therefore cannot be listed. However, the point I suppose I would make here is we were in the end rather arguing on the head of a pin, because even if that one individual Did fall into an ethnic minority category, it rather underlined my point that overwhelmingly at senior level, we did not have a diverse workforce. I wanted a more diverse workforce, and Deborah, the record shows that I made no fewer than five appointments to relatively senior positions over a period of years of black, Asian, or minority ethnic staff. And in, I think, if memory serves me, three of those cases, the appointees were both Black, Asian or minority ethnic and female, and they were all appointed on merit, as of course, people should be appointed to positions on merit. But there was at the time stiff resistance, and it was quite commonplace when I became Speaker for there to be short lists which contain no diversity at all. Unless I had pushed and kicked and shoved and driven the process of attempted and intended change, I very politely suggest it simply wouldn't have happened. If I'd not pushed for the creation of a nursery, for example, for which MPs and staff could pay, it wouldn't have happened. I remember once when I spoke at a Clark's conference a retired clerk saying to me she was pleased to see i'd established a nursery she didn't know if i was aware but throughout her four decades of service in the house the notion of establishing a nursery for which mbs and staff could pay which would broker a better work-life balance for parents had been intermittently discussed but nothing had ever happened but she said mr speaker i see you've established such a facility within 18 months well i did but it had to be fought for and it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't fought for it. You know, I established an education center, digital, high-tech, cutting edge, interactive, state-of-the-art. It wouldn't have happened unless I'd picked it up and run with it. And those appointments, diverse appointments I made, wouldn't have happened unless I'd pushed for them. I wanted a, a scheme for people from disadvantaged backgrounds of ability and commitment who wanted to work in parliament, couldn't but couldn't afford to work as unpaid interns. To have that opportunity. Again, there was resistance to that. It had to be fought for. So I suppose the point I'm making all along is you can either be a reforming speaker or you can be an uncontroversial speaker. But you can't be both. And I was a reforming speaker. I didn't just want to hold the office and hunt the trophy. And you sometimes find people in the workplace who just want to hunt for the trophy. And once they've got a trophy, they just want another trophy. But they're not necessarily demonstrating much interest in doing very much once they're in post. I wanted to be a doer. I wanted to make change. I wanted to cause things to happen. And that has attracted a lot of flack from people who frankly thought that the role of the Speaker was simply to nod in the appropriate direction at a given time and to do as the parliamentary Sir Humphreys counselled. Well, That wasn't my approach to the speakership, and I have no regrets about the fact that I took a reforming approach and tried to make a difference with the limited power that I had. Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Do you think you were easy to work with?
0: I don't think I was a particularly difficult person with whom to work in the Speaker's office. I suppose what I would say is fundamentally, I like people. I'm a warm person. I enjoy interacting with others. I showed appreciation to my staff and the staff of the House every single day. And I was informal and genial, and I came in and out of the office and the outer office in a way that apparently my predecessors didn't. Am I a stiff, upper-lipped Englishman? No. Am I a model of calm stoicism and imperturbability at all times? No. Can I now and again get ratty if progress isn't made, or there are delays, or obstacles are unreasonably put in the way. Yes, did I handle every situation in the chamber as I should have done? No, I'm flawed. I sometimes wind people up unnecessarily. But overwhelmingly, I had collegiate relations with the people with whom I worked. So the notion, you know, that I was fundamentally a difficult person to work with simply doesn't wash. There were staff who worked with me for several years and a number who'd left who specifically came back to say three cheers to me on the occasion of the last Prime Minister's questions that I chaired in October 2019. Now, I think if they thought that I was some sort of demon, they wouldn't have done that. I do think I was a difficult person to work with. But of course, I wanted to make things happen. And now and again, in the workplace, people can get irritated. But did I go around thunderously denouncing people or shouting and screaming and losing my rag with people? I most certainly didn't. And if I had done, there would have been a dramatic turnover in staff. And there wasn't. So I think the clue's in the stats. So to reference
1: another much-loved political television comedy, nobody saying you were like Malcolm Tucker in the thick of it.
0: No. I remember seeing that show, and you know, it's a great show, and it's very skillfully done. But he is, of course, an extremely unattractive character with not just a short fuse, but no fuse, and basically going around being nasty and abusive to people. That's not me. I've never been like that. I've had wonderful relations with the vast majority of people with whom I worked. It was a great privilege to serve a speaker. And I remember as I went out of the chamber, Deborah, every day and was surrounded by the doorkeepers who come in and out of the chamber delivering messages, getting glasses of water, ensuring that everybody's content. Every single day for 10 years and four months, I would say thank you to the doorkeepers. I regularly thanked my own staff. I tried to motivate and encourage and give sucker to people. So, you know, I wasn't difficult. I remember at one point having a wonderful person work with me who'd worked in the house for a very long time. And she eventually decided that she thought if she didn't leave, she never would. And she decided to go and work somewhere else. But she did say to me, I've worked in this place for 18 years and you're the best boss I've ever had. So I do think there's something quite interesting here. The vast majority of people I got on very well with, staff, members of parliament, ministers, shadow ministers, etc. There was a tiny sprinkling of what I would call very entitled people who tended to think they should have their say, but also have their way, who took great umbrage at me saying, well, actually... I intend to do it this way. And with some of those people, and it was a very small catering of individuals, I had less fruitful relations. It was a long time ago. And the notion that they were bullied is, in my opinion, preposterous. None of these cases would even be heard in court because they're also ancient and they're civil matters in relation to which statutes of limitations apply. And the process, as I've explained a number of times has been incredibly flawed present witnesses were not interviewed absent witnesses were preferred over them hearsay was judged preferable to the views of people who were in the room at the time all sorts of unparticularized testimony was taken that is to say general commentary on a person rather than about the specifics and event when people said when asked no I don't remember John Burko saying that the conclusion was that that evidence was unhelpful and should be discounted or disregarded. Why was it unhelpful, Deborah? You might think it would be regarded as quite helpful, namely indicating that nothing of any great significance was thought to have taken place, and no exceptional behavior occurred. But no, interestingly, the judgment was that this evidence was unhelpful and should be disregarded. If somebody was a friend of mine, it was said he was a very close friend of mine. If somebody was a friend of one of the complainants, this wasn't thought worthy of note at all. If somebody was a staffer appointed by or working directly for me, it was said that his evidence should be treated with caution because he was part of what was thought to be my camp or nexus. If somebody had worked with someone else, for example, as a clerk for 20, 30, 40 years, that wasn't thought to be notable at all. Those people were treated as absolutely selfless seekers after truth. This is the lopsided, unjust and amateurish process that I've undergone for almost two years, overseen by people who had no legal background at all. None of them was a lawyer, and the decision maker, a middle ranking public servant, is not a lawyer.
1: So, uh, you don't think the proceedings have been fair or fairly done?
0: To say the proceedings have been unfair is a gross understatement. And I think that the investigators and the decision makers know that if this were debated in a courtroom, it wouldn't last a couple of minutes, it would be thrown out very easily. But unfortunately, the process involves parliamentary privilege and the decision-maker saying, well, you can't discuss this outside and you're not allowed access to documents. You can't see what emails might or might not have flown between, for example, investigators and the decision-maker or investigators and the House of Commons bureaucracy, etc., etc. You're not allowed to see any of that. And... Obviously, in a legal process where you have discovery and the right to obtain documents, Deborah, that wouldn't apply. So, you know, it is, frankly, a grievously unjust process. And what motivates people, resentment of me, resentment of my resistance sometimes to their ways of doing things, resentment of change. And I think it is most unfortunate, but there certainly is a cabal in the House which is hostile and is determined to have its way. And because hundreds of thousands of pounds of public money have been spent on this process, it follows that the people who are operating it and who gave the go-ahead for it are determined to get their scalp. But has it got anything to do with justice or equity? Not a thing.
1: Now, you've spoken on the podcast before about your role in what some could see as making sure Brexit was done properly and what others could see as slowing down Brexit. Do you think that there's a resentment there that has led to this inquiry or has that got nothing to do with it?
0: I think it's a factor. I'm not sure it applies especially to the House of Commons officials because they tend not to give vent to their political views and... I'm not suggesting that all of them or most of them or even a large number of them are necessarily Brexiteers. I think on the whole where they're slightly resentful is that they felt that their advice should be accepted and on one or two occasions procedurally they advised me in a particular way and I didn't think the advice was sound and so I followed my own preferred course of action and I think that was resented. But I think it would be more accurate to say that there were people in government There were some fairly hard-nosed, some might say extreme Brexiteers who felt a deep resentment and antipathy towards me and were determined to try to make life difficult for me. And so to that extent, yes, was Brexit a factor? I think it certainly was. And certainly as far as the Prime Minister was concerned, it was. The Prime Minister said some laudatory words about me on the occasion of my last Prime Minister's questions when he said I'd been a great servant of the House and he listed a whole series of changes that I'd ushered in and so on. But he did tell me privately that he was very annoyed that I had allowed the introduction of what became the Ben Act, Hillary Benn and Oliver Letwin and others, who brought forward and secured the support of the House for a bill which became an act that would prevent a no-deal Brexit on the 31st of October 2019. He said that had damaged the government's negotiating position with the European Union and was most regrettable. To which my reply was, as far as I'm concerned, Prime Minister, the House must have its say and the House must have its way. I thought that bill was procedurally proper if you didn't like it and you wanted to stop it, it was up to you to have the numbers to defeat it. But it was obvious to me that he bore a very considerable resentment and ill will over that matter. So that's another example of how I think Brexit was relevant. I don't say all of this is about Brexit. I've explained I think some of it's about fusty traditionalism in the House and a clerkly cabal that was very resistant to my modernising agenda, but there was also an element of Brexit as part of the equation.
1: So can I just ask you as a feminist, there were two men and one woman who accused you of things. What specifically did the woman say you did?
0: I'm accused of turning my head away and then blanking the person concerned for a period of several hours on an aircraft. I absolutely deny that. It was suggested that we sat next to each other. We didn't. The person concerned sat two rows behind me. And it wasn't a question, Deborah, of blanking her. It was a night flight, a point not communicated by the complainant to the investigator, but revealed by me. And because it was a night flight, I went to sleep as I knew that I would be addressing a conference of 300 people the following day. So that was one allegation. Then there was an allegation that I had subjected the individual concerned to a persistent and hate-filled stare. Well, I'm absolutely insistent that I did nothing of the kind, but the important point here in process and evidential terms is that I was well aware that there were nine other people present at the meeting. So, of course, I'm sure your listeners will understand, I said to the investigator, well, you haven't quoted any of the nine other attendees at the meeting, to which in writing he replied, no, I didn't intend to go through the list of the nine, Mr. Burko, because as it was so long ago, none of them would remember. I said, of course, well, obviously they wouldn't remember that which didn't happen, but your thesis is that it did happen. You seem to accept the Allegation that it did. So, presumably, you should ask the witnesses. But he said, no, he didn't intend to do so for that reason. And for one other reason, which was that at the time of my alleged stare, somebody else had been speaking. And therefore, the natural focus of attention of those attendees would have been on that other person. And I said, well, I know who that other person was speaking because the minutes show it. But he spoke extremely briefly and he was a distinguished and cerebral person in the house. Wasn't an MP, he was a very senior official, but he was a diffident and understated, rather reserved person. And the idea that he captivated and magnetized the attendees with the quality of his oratory was implausible. He spoke extremely briefly, and it is suggested that I continued with this persistent and hate filled look. Obviously, somebody would have noticed. Somebody would have said, Mr. Speaker, you seem rather discombobulated. Are you irate? Is there something that has discontented you? What's the matter? Nobody did. So it's a very, very, very extraordinary allegation. And it is an allegation which the decision maker accepts with a one sentence reference to it before immediately rushing on to something else. And the last allegation of any significance that this person has made is that I subjected her to a rant after a meeting. And I remember the day in question because it happened to be my wife's birthday, the only occasion in 10 years as Speaker when a meeting of the House of Commons Commission coincided with my wife's birthday. I was expected to get upstairs for cake as soon as the meeting finished, and as a consequence of that... I raced upstairs for exactly that purpose in November, to be precise, on November the 22nd, 2010. I didn't dilly-dally and engage in any rant, and there isn't a single independent witness to say that I did.
1: Okay, so the three things that a a woman has accused you of is being blanked on an aeroplane, are being stared at or glared at in one meeting and ranting after a meeting. Okay, yes. I just need to know that as a feminist is what a woman has said, and I appreciate your clear side of that story. Finally, why have you spoken out before the inquiry has ended?
0: Because the way in which this process operates, you haven't a chance in hell of getting your message heard If you adhere entirely to its constraints, you're told you can't discuss it at all. Well, the situation is that for two years, Deborah, I have observed confidentiality. It has been an absolutely grueling, debilitating, harrowing experience, damaging to me, upsetting for my family, extremely unhelpful and misery making. But nevertheless, I've adhered to confidentiality, all three of the current complainants have either directly or indirectly briefed the media about their complaints. They did so two years ago. None of those misdemeanors on their part has been taken remotely seriously by the investigators or the decision maker. I've constantly been reminded to preserve confidentiality. And the reason I've decided to speak out now is that if I wait... Until the last minute when the decision is released, you get scarcely 24 hours notice of it. And all the attention is on what the finding stroke decision is. At that point, you haven't got a cat in hell's chance of getting your counter message heard. So in anticipating the possibility of a negative outcome, I am appealing to the independent expert panel. But in anticipating the possibility of a negative outcome... I want beforehand to get out there and to say this has been a protracted, amateurish and unjust process. And I'd like to plant in the public mind the idea that there's something rotten in the state of Denmark, so far as the operation of this process is concerned. That's why I'm doing so. It's not about settling scores with individuals. I haven't named any of the individual complainants. They've all briefed against me. I haven't named them. What I've tried to do is to explain calmly, logically, and with examples, how and why this process has been unfair and wouldn't begin to pass muster in any court in the land. I wouldn't want to be represented or portrayed as somebody who doesn't believe in an anti-bullying and harassment policy. I do. Amongst other things, I am the parent of three children. My wife and I as parents want our children to enter the workplace in the confident expectation that they will be fairly treated, that they won't be bullied or harassed or intimidated or threatened or belittled or disparaged in any way. I think most of us would want that. So I'm not one of those people who say, oh, I don't believe in all this anti-bullying stuff. It's a lot of nonsense. Not at all. I think it's, in many respects, a very civilising influence on a workplace. But any process, Deborah, must be fair. And if in the name of tackling bullying, a process is instituted which doesn't respect basic principles of natural justice, of due process, of fair play, that process should be changed. Huge amounts of money have been spent on this. Far too much power is vested in one person. There is secrecy on an industrial scale. And what I'm saying is, irrespective of the merits of my case, this is not right, and this should not stand.
1: Do you feel now that the power differential between you as a private citizen And this process has been in any way debilitating or intimidating of you.
0: Yes, I certainly do think the irony is that there is now a very different power relationship. I'm a private citizen. I'm not part of the loop in the House. I don't interact with the officials. And what I have encountered, Deborah, which is upsetting and disappointing and I think it says more about the people involved than it does about me, is the most enormous display of two-facedness. In other words, I had people who said to me at the time that I worked in the House, what a great speaker I was, what a terrific reformer, what an enormous difference I was making. And I had a decision maker saying to me, do you want to know, Mr. Speaker, what my approach is? I'm not interested in a victim-led approach. I'm interested in an evidence-led approach. ABC is my approach. Do you know what that means, she said. And I said, I don't know, but I've got a feeling I'm about to discover. Yes, indeed, she said. ABC, accept nothing, believe nothing, challenge everything. Instead, it's been a case of accept everything, believe everything, challenge nothing. Because someone says this is what happened in a very, very large number of cases, the attitude has been, oh x or y or z said this happened or told his or her partner or a friend or made a note and therefore it must be true and my argument is that if somebody kept a note or a diary that is a source of evidence but it isn't an independent source of evidence it is his or her very often colored and partisan view it was put to me on a number of occasions during these investigations by investigators Mr. Burko, did you keep a diary? Did you possess a record? Do you have a note of what happened? To which my answer is no, I didn't keep a record in that sense. I was discharging two jobs. I had a job as Member of Parliament of Buckingham, serving 75,000 constituents, and I served for over a decade as Speaker of the House of Commons during one of the most turbulent periods in post-war British politics. I didn't sit around keeping a diary. But should I be disadvantaged because I didn't keep a diary, as against someone who did? In all fairness, I surely should not be disadvantaged. And I think it's only reasonable to add, I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I think it's reasonable to add that for all my many failings and foibles and weaknesses, one of the most common things that's been said about me by friend and foe over 30 years' involvement in public life is... John has an exceptionally good memory. I remember things that I said on the 23rd of October, 1986. I remember a speech I made on the 27th of April, 1999. I remember a speech I made in the House of Commons on March the 7th, 2000, etc., etc. So I do have a pretty good memory. I do remember what I did say and what I didn't. And what has happened is that after a, a vast lapse of time, an extremely skewed, protracted amateurish and unjust process has been rolled out against me. And people with only the most fleeting memories of incidents in the long rear view mirror are being credited as though they are credible witnesses to historic events. The truth of the matter is the evidence is somewhere between threadbare and non-existent. And if the process were fair, these complaints, in my judgment, would have been thrown out.
1: John, thank you so much for coming and talking about this today. I know it's a tough thing to talk about. and We appreciate hearing your side of the story.
0: Deborah, thank you. And I look forward to seeing you soon.
1: You have been listening to Absolute Power with me, Deborah Francis-White.
0: And me, John Burko.
1: Recording facilities were provided by Spiritland, and the music was by Hannah Ledwidge. The producers for The Spontaneity Shop were Ned Sedgwick and Tom Selinsky. Absolute Power is part of the ACAST Creator Network and the House of the Guilty Feminist. For more information about this and other episodes, visit absolutepowerpodcast.com.